0: Well, good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing this morning? Wow, some, I heard some say good. Uh, well, I hope you are doing well. Uh, again, as Ashley said, this morning uh, uh, begins Holy Week, uh, and we go through a process uh, of preparing for the resurrection. Uh, and I'm excited uh, to start off this morning uh, with Palm Sunday uh, and to talk about what's uh, that day meant uh, for that day in history and for us uh, this morning. So, for those of you that are new, welcome again to Bethany. Uh, my name is Prentice, and I get the privilege to be the pastor here. Uh, and I'm so excited, uh, again, to, to really dig into this text that we were reading. Uh, again, if you are new, we started this sermon series a few weeks ago for Lent called Seasons. Uh, Understanding that in our lives we go through different seasons, and and everyone who walked in these doors, uh, most likely you are going through a season, Uh, and perhaps that season uh, is filled with joy and and filled with relationships and filled with love, and and it's a great season to be in, Uh, but the fact of the matter is many of us uh, are going through this season on the other side of that. Where many of us are experiencing uh, loneliness, and anger, and uh, sickness, or whatever it is. Uh, And and for many of us, we're somewhere in between. And so uh, I really believe that as we enter into this season of Easter, this resurrected life, that God has something to say as we prepare for that. Uh, And so again, as Ashley read, uh, our text comes from John uh, chapter 12, and we will continue uh, to unpack that a bit. But as we do, will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for who you are, what you've done, and what you will continue to do. God, we thank you just for just this morning, and we thank you for those that had a wonderful time during the spring break. Uh, we pray for those families and people that are traveling back uh, from their vacation. God, would you give them safety, joy, and memories of, of the time that they had. We thank you. Uh right, in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so a few days ago, uh, I went to dinner with, with Maria and, and some friends, uh, and I had a really interesting experience. And, and In fact, I had created this sermon and this sermon illustration, but I thought I would change it because uh, this experience was so different, uh, and it hit me kind of in a different way. Where we were having dinner, uh, there, was about, there was four of us. Uh, And the server came, took our order, uh, and and maybe made a little mistake. No big deal. Her boss comes uh, with her and asks uh, for clarification, did we order this? And we said, yeah, no big deal. Uh, And right in front of us, the, the, the manager or the boss or whoever this person was looked at the server and essentially chewed her out for making the mistake. This was right in front of us, and I wish I was exaggerating, but this is what happened. Uh, and in right in front of us, the server started crying, and ran off. And, and the server was saying, "They're saying," oh, the, the manager was saying, "We're so sorry. Uh, she makes a thousand mistakes a day." And then he walks off. And, and at that moment, we were just boggled. Like, what? Did that just happen? And I remember kind of going after her and saying, are you okay? And she was like, yeah, don't worry about everything's okay. So I was like, okay. So we sit down and it was so obscure and so insane that I, I had to ask, I was like, are we on an episode of what would you do? You guys ever watch that show where I'm like, if we don't do something, we're going to look like the jerks that just let everything go. So like, do we have to do something? Because it was that, it was that unfathomable. I, and not only that, I went to the restroom, I was coming back, and all my way back, I saw him kind of chewing her out again. And, and so I go up to her and, I, and she was crying and I had to just say, stop, like, are you okay? That is not okay. And she was just you know, didn't want to talk to me about it, so she walked off, and I wanted to respect that. And we sat down, and it kind of ruined our dinner a little bit, uh, not because she made mistakes or any of that, but because of the way that he was treating her. Right, and so, on the way out, I was so angry that that this would happen. And, and, and I remember reading the scripture about you know Jesus, you know, being subversive and, and doing things all differently for, for Palm Sunday. Uh, but I had to push that aside, or, or maybe I used the Bible a little bit. When I went up to her on my way, and I had everyone leave, uh, and I just go up to her, and I said, hey, don't listen to him. He is just a big donkey, because because I was reading the scripture, and I was being biblical, right? <laughs> and, and maybe the word donkey didn't come out. It was the same animal, but maybe a different word, and I remember leaving, and Maria was saying, what did you say to him, what did, or what did you say? And I was like, nothing, don't worry about it, I just said bye. And <laughs> but, I, but I remember being so flustered, not only at that whole experience, but even myself, because for a moment, my attitude, the words that came out, and this is just a confession, uh, high school apprentice came out for like just 10 seconds, a guy that I thought I got rid of, the attitude that I thought I put to death, uh, the words that I thought I would not speak anymore. But I remember being so angry, and I had to just give him a piece of my mind because of the way that he was treating her. And I thought to myself, man, sometimes in life, our old self comes out. And sometimes in our lives, when our old stuff comes out, our old attitudes, our old behavior from the moment that we have said, you know what, I'm going to commit my life to Jesus. Uh, We've committed to live just a different way. And sometimes and oftentimes we can all experience this, that person still comes out. And what we know about that person that comes out is often antithetical to the ways of Jesus. And and I remember, what if there was a different way? I I, I don't mean it would we should just say silent and I don't think the right thing would have been it's not say anything but what if Jesus offers a different way to either handle conflict relationships a different way to view money upward mobility uh, I really believe that this text is all about being antithetical to the culture and the world and the voices around us what if the Bible says what if there's a different way and, and, and the big idea for this morning is simply this: The ways of Jesus are different. When we look at the text that Ashley read, we see immediately the ways of Jesus are different, often countercultural, unexpected, and for being honest, just downright difficult. But always, but always it reveals the nature of God, what our calling is, how we should live. And it becomes a path to discipleship. And what discipleship is? Just becoming more like Christ. Just to become more like Christ. To develop intimacy, to emulate the way Jesus is, to love that he, the way that he loved. And, and again, in this text this morning, this is what the text is all about. And so what we're going to do is let me unpack a few things. I'm going to talk about context Because it's important for us to grab a a deeper meaning of what is happening right here and right now. Uh, And then I want to unpack the word glory. uh, And and then I want to unpack this idea of surrender. So context, glory, and surrender. And so first, let's talk about the context. There's a few observations that we have to make as far as the context. And the first is this. There was a massive oppression of the Jews. In the ancient Near East, which is essentially modern day Middle East, uh, in Israel, modern day Israel, uh, that the Jews were oppressed. And they've always been oppressed throughout the entirety of their history, especially up to this point. If not the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, I mean, they were constantly under this marginalization. And, and I would say a marginalization was kind of an understatement, it was more of an oppression of illegal taxation, of violence, of of being casted out of society. There was just an extreme amount of oppression towards the Jews. This is all throughout history, from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. And so given that, the Jews were expecting a savior... And so, again, all throughout the the Old Testament and the Psalms and and even the prophecies, uh, there was this message saying, don't you worry, hang in there, my Jewish people. There will be a vindication. There will be a leader, uh, probably of military force, a powerful person to ride in on a a horse that represented uh, strength, And majesty, don't you worry that although there is oppression amongst our people, there will be a savior. And of course, because of this actual oppression of kingdoms, of different empires... The natural way of thinking and believing is that the Savior, this Messiah, uh, the person who would vindicate the Jews uh, and be triumphant over their enemies, and not just be triumphant but also crush the enemies, will obviously be a figure, a powerful figure of some sorts. A politician, a, a military leader, someone of strength, someone uh, that would overthrow the, the empire at hand. And so fast forward to the New Testament, we see Jesus uh, being represented in all the Gospels as someone who gives hints that this person, this Messiah that you're expecting, Jesus is saying, that's actually me. And so when we look at John chapter 1 through 13, it's called the, uh, the book of signs. And we've talked about a few of these signs, or seven signs. Uh, and the first sign that we talked about was the miracle or the sign uh, of Jesus turning water into wine. And, and then all throughout, between chapter one to 13, there's different signs, whether it's feeding of the 5,000 of just a few loaves, uh, whether it's healings of the paralytic, uh, there's all these different signs to say, you know what? I'm just gonna give you a little hints. You're probably, Jesus is saying, you're probably not ready to find out the whole truth. Right now is not the time, so I'm gonna just drop hints. Uh, and again, uh, scholars call John, John chapter 1 through 13 the, the book of signs where Jesus draws, drops hints uh, of who he is. And, and if you analyze these hints or these signs of his messiahship, uh, they get a bit bigger and more grand each time it goes. And the last of his signs was just a chapter before chapter 12 that we just read in the triumphal entry. And it's about raising of the dead, of raising Lazarus. And I don't have time to unpack that story, but know that that was the last sign, last miracle that Jesus did before he enters into his death. And so when the people see and heard of what happened, they say, okay, you raised Lazarus from the dead. You have all these powers uh, to heal people, uh, to multiply food. And then now all of a sudden, uh, things are starting to connect because after uh, each miracle, uh, between one and six, Jesus would say, Now is not my time. My hour has not yet come. And so therefore, he couldn't reveal everything that was happening, just dropping hints. And then suddenly, people start to connect the dots. Miracle number seven, no accident, that was number seven. Miracle number seven, people say, this must be it. This must be the person. The next day, a great crowd, it says in verse 12, that had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, after Jesus did this miracle of raising Lazarus uh, from the dead in Bethany, he travels to Jerusalem uh, for Passover. And, And people caught wind that Jesus was coming. And people connected the dots that this Jesus must be the Messiah. Jesus must be the very person that uh, our ancestors from all the way to the beginning talked about, this Messiah, this political figure, this person of power, this military person who's going to come in a war horse, a stallion, uh, and set our people free. If this isn't the person, I don't know who is. This is the mentality of the ancient Jewish people during this time. And I love the crowd's response. And we saw a little hint of this. It says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the king of Israel. Notice, it says palm branches. Hosanna, king of Israel. The, these words that the evangelist John uses is no accident. It was no accident. There was a reason why uh, they used the word palm branches, why hosanna, and, and the word king. There, it was, everything was intentional. Now, something that we want to make just a few more observations is this. The palm branches uh, was a, a, a symbol of victory and triumph. And it wasn't this random thing that just waved, like, hey, Jesus, what's up? Like, there was a reason why they intentionally selected palm branches. And, and it comes from a story, uh, an ancient story of the Maccabees. So, so entertain me for a second. I'm going to spend just two minutes uh, going history channel on you for a second. Is that okay? Okay, so, uh, there was a, a, a family named the Maccabeans. Okay? Uh, particularly a man named Judas Maccabeus. And so uh, the, Macca- the Maccabees actually uh, may not be in the Protestant canon, may not be in the, in the, in the Protestant Bible, but if you ever like, flip through the, like, a Catholic Bible, there's this section of the Apocrypha. The Maccabees is part of the Apocrypha, uh, and in fact, I use it oftentimes in my own studies. Uh, But Maccabees is an apocrypha, uh, written about this Maccabean family. Uh, And in this time of the intertestamental period, okay, it's about 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You have to realize they didn't just jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There was this period of what they called silence, the silent period, the dark period, where God was still moving, but there wasn't really anything written uh, in the canon, Uh, So we have to go back to different writers, different historians, uh, such as this man named Josephus, who wrote a lot in Philo, wrote a lot about what happened in the intertestamental uh, period. And and so when the ancient Jews in the first century had these palm branches, they were thinking about uh, the famous story uh, of their ancestor, Judas Maccabeus, who, again, remember that they were always constantly... Under oppression during this time of the intertestamental period, uh, the the Jews were under oppression from the Greeks, uh, specifically the Seleucids. So it's a Seleucid family. Uh, essentially, all you have to know is the Greeks. The Greeks uh, were oppressing the Jews during this time of inter- intertestamental period. So this is about two hundred years before uh, this time that Jesus walked in. And, and the story goes that Judas Maccabeus created this this revolt. Uh, and, and during this time, the, the, the Greeks, the way that they oppressed them was they kicked them out of Jerusalem, the holy city, kicked all the Jews out of Jerusalem. And not only that, to make matters worse, took over the temple, their holy temple, and defiled it. And in Zechariah, it talks about the defilement, uh, brought in their own gods, brought in their own sacrifices, their own rituals into the temple, and, and obviously, this was not okay. But no one could do anything about it except for Judas Maccabeus, who created created an army, brought uh, different forces and different families together to create this rebellion against the Seleucids. And make a long story short, they took over uh, and, and and retook over the, the Holy Temple, which was a big deal for the Jews in the ancient times to regain the Temple. And when they regained the temple, they dedicated the temple back to God, Yahweh, for eight days, which now the Jews call Hanukkah. So anytime you hear about, or maybe you perhaps celebrate Hanukkah, it's because it's a rededication of the temple that the Maccabeans took back when the Seleucids took it. Now, uh, when after the dedication was over and the Maccabean family, especially Judas Maccabeus, came back into the town, there was a procession for him. And and not only that, they grabbed palm branches, again, because palm branches uh, was a symbol of victory and triumph. That's all over the Old Testament, that's in the Psalms, uh, that's in the prophets, that, that this was a sign of winning. This was a sign of... Uh, of a, someone powerful defeating someone weaker. Uh, and, and people in the games, there, was, there were particular games like the Olympics that we have today. There was games and the winners would get palm branches because it signified triumph and victory. And, and so when we go back to fast forward this time when Jesus is walking in, they view Jesus as Judas Maccabeus. This was a famous story that they've had in mind the whole time. There's someone, a political figure, a powerful military person. We don't know who it is, but someone like Judas Maccabeus is going to come uh, to reign and to be victorious and to overthrow now the Roman government, the Roman Empire. And so they got palms to represent exactly what happened 200 years ago saying, you are the king of Israel. Again, king is very, very intentional because during that time there was only one king and that was Caesar. And, 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 if, and if you ever doubted Caesar as king, you, you would be put to death. And yet here this crowd was saying that you, Jesus, are king. And, and so then they cried out the, the word Hosanna. Hosanna which in Hebrew is actually hoshana, which means save now. Jesus, will you save now? Jesus, you know that what we've been through, you know what we're going through, the oppression, the, the violence, the hatred, the way that we're treated Jesus, save now, hoshana, hosanna, will you save us now? It's not a noun, it's not a title, people. We, we think hosanna, hosanna is a title. Hosanna was this cry of desperation. It was a cry of desperation. It, it was almost a command. It was an imperative verb, a participle. So uh, imperative meaning it, command. It was like, Jesus, save us now. In, in, the, back of my mind, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, Judas Maccabeus, who overthrew, who had the power, the force to just wipe out the Seleucids. Will you be that person? Save us now. You have to be that person. You, 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 rose, you, you brought Lazarus from death to life. You brought all these healings. We saw all those signs. We're connecting the dots. Jesus, Hosanna, save us now. Palm branches, because we know that you will be victorious. You will be triumphant. Jesus, save us Now. King, and, and so when Jesus came in on a donkey, you, you can imagine some of the confusion that they must have felt, right? For, for centuries, literally centuries and centuries and centuries, they had imagined that their Savior, their Messiah, would come as a political or a military figure like Judas Maccabeus, and yet... Uh, here comes this man named Jesus riding on a donkey. And so it says at first his, his disciples did not understand all this. I mean, I can just imagine their confusion. Because, I mean, have you ever like expected something and then it's like, wah, wah, it's like, something like completely different or not as cool or extravagant happen. I mean, I really feel like that's what the Jews were going through right now because they're like, this guy is going to come in on a horse, on a war horse, because that's what military figures do, and yet they're ready for him, and here comes this man who they thought was Savior coming on a donkey. Only after Jesus was glorified, and this word glorying, being glorified, comes up often in in this passage, Did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him? So they don't really know what's going on. At this point, they're just extremely confused. But there's something about what happened that created this idea of glory. Glory. And, And so I know that we're kind of doing some foreign language work here, but this is really, really important uh, the word glory is the word doxa. Many of us may have heard about this word doxa. It literally means honor or something of weight. And so, again, like if you have jewelry and if it's heavy, that's worthy, it's got weight, it's got honor, it's got value. Uh, and so this idea of glory is about honor. And honor was a big deal in this ancient Near East because honor uh, was part of this shame and honor culture that the Jews lived in at this time. And so they believed that to have power, to have control, to defeat the enemy was what, that, what would bring glory. That's what they thought would be glorious. To have power, to have victory, to have triumph, that's doxa, that's honor. And remember, in a shame and honor culture, uh, and for those of you that come from more of an Eastern culture, I, know, I do, my family does, uh, shame and honor is a big deal. It's a real thing. And so during this time, the opposite was true for the Jews. They were under oppression. They were losing the battles. They were being killed. They were being pushed out. So they didn't experience doxa. They didn't experience honor. They actually experienced the opposite. They experienced shame. They experienced shame. And they thought the route to glory, to honor, essentially equating joy and a fruitful life, and a happy life and a fulfilled life came through a military force of power to overthrow just like this, this man named Judas Maccabeus did 200 years ago. They believed glory came from power, victory. And this was conventional wisdom during these ancient times. And, and I would argue that this is conventional wisdom even for Today. For many of us, when I, when I say define glory, we may not even use the word glory, it's a little archaic, but, but, but when I say what is success, what is fruitfulness, what is life, not just, li- not just breathing, but what does it mean to live life and life to, have, to, to its abundance? Uh, many of us, we would, whether you say it out loud or not, but we know that it's about winning, it's about being right, it's about being powerful, it's about being victorious, Especially in the Western culture, there seems to be only one spot for a winner. And if you're not the winner, you're the loser. I mean, that is just kind of the way that we've been conditioned. And that's the way that we've been conditioned to to define what glory is. And I would argue, including myself, many of us, you and I, we have fallen into the trap of finding glory, honor, joy, happiness, whatever that fill in the blank is. That glory in all the wrong places. Not only in the wrong places and the wrong attitudes and the wrong people and the wrong things. We think that joy and happiness and uh, victory and glory and honor come through one avenue only to be disappointed when we reach it. Because as followers of Jesus, God defines glory in a completely different way. So it's no wonder when we're on the track to glory, to honor, to joy, to fulfillment, to accept, whatever it is, we go the wrong direction because we think we know what it is. We get there and we are severely disappointed because God has something very different in mind. And maybe for you, glory comes through upward mobility a promotion at work, financial prosperity, a particular type of relationship or friendship. Maybe glory is uh, through your own selfishness or through your own ego uh, of always needing to be right, of always needing to win. I remember a couple weeks ago, Maria, my fiance. I didn't even ask you to use this, but we got into a little a little spiff, uh, a little argument, and. I said the words, okay, fine, you were right, okay? For those of you that are really stubborn, like me, saying the words, okay, you were right, is very, very painful, right? I mean, some of you guys can understand exactly what I'm going through. Uh, It it, it was very painful. And the reason why it was very painful is because I've defined glory as always needing to be right. Because for those of you that know me, I'm very... Uh, Frequently competitive, super unhealthy way. So uh, there's that. Uh, and, and not to mention, it's very difficult for me to admit when I'm wrong. Okay, I know as a pastor I should be humble. I should you know, know all these things. But sorry, this is who you get. <laughs> and, and, and when I said, sorry, you were right, uh, again, which is difficult for me to say, I, <laughs> I followed up with, but I wasn't wrong, okay? Like, we were both right. Like, you were definitely right, but I, but I wasn't wrong, okay? And again, I'm convinced it's because of my own ego. It's because what I define as glory, it creates my own selfishness. It creates my own Stubbornness, And I am convinced, even to this very second, I am convinced that until we get this right, this definition of glory, of honor, of what's right, until we get that, our relationships will suffer. Our relationships will suffer. Forgiveness will be impossible. Humility will die. Self-righteousness will be alive and well. Until we understand what it means to truly be glorified to truly seek what God is seeking, to truly understand what God did through the person of Jesus on the cross even a week before as he walked in or rode in on a donkey. And so for many of us, when we talk about our own ego or our own definition of glory, whether it's financial prosperity, whether it's promotions, whether it's relationships, whether it's how you want your business to work out or your your role at work to work out, whatever it is, What if Jesus is asking us to surrender all those aspirations, those dreams, those things that we came up on our own? To further explain this idea of of flipping the kingdom upside down, when Jesus walks in on a horse, his explanation is something like this. Jesus replied, or when he walks in a donkey, he says something like this, the, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be, glor- Doxa, to be glorified, to have honor. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Like a grain, even us. This is an example, an analogy for us is what Jesus is speaking. Like a grain, like a seed, we must be buried. Jesus calls us to, to as an analogy, to be, to be put to death, quote, unquote, death in order to receive new life. It's crazy. You must lose your life, he says, to gain it. You must must serve and not to be served. You must follow and not lead. You must be a servant and not a master. This is such backwards way of thinking, especially in the first century, when they thought the way to glory, to fruitfulness, to joy, to happiness, to contentment, to fulfillment in life, is through triumph, right? They thought that honor, doxa, came through just like the person of Judas Maccabeus to overthrow, to victory. They thought that was the way to glory and Jesus comes in and flips everything upside down and says, in order for you to be honored, to be glorified, you have to be like me. You have to, you have to put conventional wisdom upside down. Actually, losing is actually winning. To be put to death is actually to be alive. To be last is actually to be first. I mean, this is all backwards way of thinking in the first century, and I would argue it's maybe even more so backwards way of thinking even today. What do you need to surrender this morning? What do you need to bury? Like a seed, what do you need to bury, what do you need to put to death in order for that to sprout new life, new relationships, new ways of thinking? What do we have to put to death for those to be birthed in our lives? And I would argue that the hardest, the hardest aspect of discipleship, to be like Christ, as we talked about, is this very thing, to surrender, to simply surrender the things that are not of Christ. This is hard. This is offensive. This is what turns us away, oftentimes for many of us, to follow the person of Jesus. I mean, you can even see one minute they're crying "Hosanna." God saves and when they yell "Hosanna" is because they believe that this person is going to save them. They they have uh, they have confidence in him. They have this belief and joy, and finally, their Messiah is coming, and so they say, "Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest." So they say, "Hosanna" in one minute. God save us! You're a victor. You're a hero. And then a few chapters later, they say. Crucify him. Crucify him. John chapter 19, crucify him. One minute, he's a victor. The next minute, he's a villain. And how many times we go back and forth with that kind of attitude? One minute a victor, the next minute a villain. We want to worship. And this is me, I'm talking to myself. We want to worship We wanna follow, we wanna be faithful, we wanna be obedient, until it costs us something. Until it costs us something. Because the fact of the matter is, oftentimes we we view Jesus not as a God, but as a genie. God, here's what I want, here's my three wishes today. God, will you provide this for me? God, will you make this happen? God, would you just make sure that I win or I become victorious? This is what I want. This is what I want my future to look like. I have it all planned out, God. This kind of job, this kind of relationship, this kind of money, this kind of house, this kind of car, God, I have it all planned out. And what if those dreams or those aspirations, Jesus is asking you to surrender? Huh, well, no way. Not, Not if you're asking me to surrender, And so many people turn away. We want to worship, we want to be faithful, we want to follow until it costs us something. And I would say, if I'm being really honest, the thing that I'm working on right now is not even a future aspiration, it's my attitude. Even when I was writing this, I felt so hypocritical because this is speaking to me. And my prayer even for myself is, God, will you, will you help me put to death my attitude, my ego, my pride. I remember even kind of looping back when I, when I talked to that guy and I said, hey, you know, don't talk to her, that server, like that, you donkey. I remember thinking, man, did I have to act that way? Did I have to say that? Was there a better way? And the answer in John chapter 12 is Yes. Jesus' ways are always different, are always difficult, are always challenging, but it always draws us closer to Christ. It always brings us glory, not in, a, not in an egotistical way, but honor and fulfillment and contentment that only in an intimacy with Jesus can provide. So are we chasing something right now? Are we attached to something right now? Again, it could be your own attitude. It is for me. It could be upward mobility, money, material things, something within your family, friendships. Are we chasing something so hard, like so much that perhaps Jesus is saying, there's a different way? Maybe there's something else. Maybe I'm asking you to surrender. And are we willing to do that? Are we willing to stop viewing God as a genie and more like a Messiah, a Savior, inviting us to live a different life? And and as we go into this holy week, beginning with, this triumphal entry, may we remember this story that Jesus' ways are oftentimes, I would say, always different, countercultural, almost the opposite of what the world or conventional wisdom teaches us. And so, for those of you and myself, all of us collectively, for those of us chasing after something, someone, maybe chasing after our own selves with our own ego, our own bad attitudes, our own lack of forgiveness, our own anger. What if there's another way? The ways of Jesus never looks the same as what we've been taught or told oftentimes. So as I invite the band back up, I want us to Reflect on that. What what is God calling you to surrender this morning? For the Jews, it was to surrender their old view of what glory was defined. For the ancient Jews, glory was defined as a military, a powerful figure to overthrow the government. And what they got was a man named Jesus, a carpenter on a donkey. And for many of us, we have something envisioned, but what if the only invitation, the calling we have this morning is just to open our hands and surrender? And for those of you that are just exploring the person of Jesus, may I challenge you to ask yourself the things that you've been surrender or going after and chasing, has that been working? Has that been bringing for lack of a better word, glory, joy, honor. And and if the answer is no, I I would just encourage you to just investigate a little bit more this person of Jesus, who we celebrate this week as a person who, who died on the cross and who rose again on the third day on our behalf so that we may have intimacy with God, that Jesus defeated death, conquered evil, So that we may live a new life. That Jesus was victorious. We call this Latin word Christus Victor, that Jesus was victorious over sin, over darkness, over our old life, in order to bring us a new one. And again, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, may we investigate even deeper this week of the things that we need to be, we need to put to death on the cross. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have convicted each and every one of us in our own ways of the things that we need to surrender to you. Forgive us for the ways that we don't want to surrender. Forgive us for our own stubbornness, our own narrow-mindedness, May we be open, may our hands be open to what you have to offer for our lives because we know that your ways will always be better, will always bring more joy and fulfillment than anything else we can chase after. So not that uh, those objects or things or people are bad, that is not the case, but we know that the first place, the, the, the thing that we need to think of first is your kingdom. And your kingdom looks very different, it's upside down, and may we even get a glimpse of how to understand that and how to live that out. We thank you, we worship you this week and forever. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in worship.